Danielle's here with Successfully Chaotic, helping you find the success in the midst of all the chaos. So today I have Chase here with me with Raider Recovery, and I'm going to let Chase jump right in and introduce himself and go ahead and share with you all a little bit about who he is and what he's been doing. Oh, thank you, Maria. Hi, I'm Chase, uh, and I'm a recovering drug addict. Uh, I was hopelessly addicted to cocaine for years, and with my background coming from a domestic violence situation, there being a lot of homelessness, living on the street, you know, I, uh, the kind of people that like take in and take care of a homeless kid generally aren't very great. Uh, everyone says, Hey, yeah, we don't like homelessness. I'd let somebody stay on my couch. But when a 14 year old kid's running around trying to find a couch to stay on, it's really hard. And, uh, that kind of, Leads me to another point, like people say and hold a lot of stances in society today, but we don't see anything practiced. People say that mental illness is is something we should all be aware of and support. Everyone supports autistic children until there's an autistic episode in Walmart. Then it's, oh, no. So regardless of the public opinions, as they're stated, we still have these stigmas with things like homelessness, drug addiction, mental illness. And even domestic violence, like, you know, domestic violence victims run into a lot of flack also. Like, you know, why didn't you leave? It's not always possible to leave right away, you know? There's nowhere to go. So what I've done, obviously, with my criminal background, drug addiction, and all that good stuff, is I've been through the system a lot. And I've gotten to see how it works. So here's pretty much the gist of how that happens. You know, I'm Chase. I'm all messed up. I'm in the street. I'm doing all these bad things. Um, Not necessarily because I want to. And then I go to jail. And now that I'm in jail, something good does happen. I do get the chance to go to rehab, right? The problem is our approach to rehab. Rehab is a revolving door of money flow. When I go to rehab, right, they can kick me out whenever they want. And they still get the money from insurance as if I was there the whole 30 days. So in these rehab programs, we see a lot of really high turnover, especially when there's a lot of demand. I find it really hard to think of those statistics as a coincidence. We, we have this uh, money funnel system. That, that's what we are. We're capitalists. So anything that we have available is there to turn a profit. You know, even nonprofits. We see nonprofits generating revenue all the time. Then you leave rehab. You have the opportunity to go to a recovery house. And that costs money every week. Now, you've done some jail time by now. So like your place to live, your job, all that's gone. Uh, You went to rehab, like, so by now you've been gone maybe like a year, like gone from home by now. And so you go to this recovery house. So you're in debt immediately because you don't have money right away. You know, you don't get a paycheck for like two weeks. You don't have any transportation. Uh, At the same time, you're also on parole and probation. So you have to make appointments. You have to go to counseling. You have to show up for drug tests. You have to be able to move around. And that gets really challenging. So what we see happen is we see a lot of parole and probation violations happen. And a lot of them for like missing appointments. Uh, I, I had one uh, once where I, I lived like 20 minutes from the state line in New York. And I had a job in New York. And they banged me once for going to work in New York, leaving the state without <laughs> like, and they knew I had that job before I was on probation. So like, these are the kind of things that you run into then. You run into the violation cycle. And ultimately what happens with most individuals is they see a resentence within the first, I can't remember if it was eight or nine years of freedom from being released, 83% of people who are released go back. And that's a hard recidivism statistic. And most of those people go back within the first year. 
Those are some sad and scary statistics. I, I don't know how much I've shared with you, but I know my brother has struggled with drug addiction. Um, and he's actually in, in jail right now for pro for probation violation. And it's been in and out. He's been in and out his entire adult life. So I've watched the struggle kind of from this side, you know, from the side of being his sister, wanting to help, trying to help and not really knowing what to do. And I've, I've also seen him go to recovery places. And the last one that he um, was in, they actually weren't able to even give him prescription medication, even though he should have been on prescription medication, just because it was that type of facility. And, and you mentioned mental health. He, ha he has been diagnosed um, ADHD, bipolar, and schizophrenic. And he was in a recovery facility with no medication. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of times medication, especially after leaving jail, can be really hard to get. So medication in jail is really easy to get because, you know, obviously, like, they get paid to push medications. You know, the state pays for things. They get more funding the more people that they can get on medication. So they really want to get you on medication while you're in an institution. Once you get out of jail, you start running into this problem. Insurance doesn't want to cover it. And that's happened to me almost every time I've gone to jail, found a medication that worked, and then got out and tried to get it. It's, it's not a thing. Like, the access to medications rough. So to just summarize the brief overview of what happens, we have three parts to this whole reintegration system uh, currently in America. We have going to jail, then going to rehab, then maybe, it's not mandated at all, going to recovery house. And when you're at that recovery house, very minimal supervision, they're usually in bad neighborhoods, uh, and you're pretty much just on your own. My recovery house experience was this. I walked into an office, the dude cussed me out, told me no drugs, no booze, no bitches, here's your room, give me 125 bucks. So I gave him 125 bucks every week, pretty much never saw him again. Never had a single drug test, uh, people were using in the house, we were right down the street from a drug house. Uh, it was, it's all a bad situation. And they show up in places like this because communities have to approve their presence. So obviously, nice neighborhoods are going to go, oh, we don't want a bunch of drug addicts and criminals in our neighborhood. No, you can't build that here. So the only option left is building it in rough neighborhoods. What if we could make this a little bit easier? What if we started consolidating services? What if we started, like, you know, more or less, like a better word, giving a crap? Because the thing is, everything's so spread thin. And it's a really, it's a challenging situation to try to tackle all these things and successfully transition back into society from, you know, a point of isolation. So with all these services available, but scattered the way they are, they become really hard to access. If we could put all these services under one roof that currently exist, like, you know, they have, uh, you know, state insurance with medication. Um, they have you know, the food stamps we can get people involved in. They have uh, free legal services for people who are still fighting uh, cases. And you know, it's really hard to pursue a lot of those services. But what if we had caseworkers and case managers on site in a location that were actively pursuing those things for you while you were going to work and handling your business and making your appointments? What if we had living skills classes and counseling available on site, a lot of which even being virtual? Because work schedules are crazy, especially when you first get out of jail. I had to work like 80 hours a week when I first got out of prison just to get back on my feet. And it took me about six months of doing that. Which, I mean, I've never been to prison, so I can't say how I would feel. But again, watching my brother go through it, you know, he gets out and he's almost shell-shocked, you know, just from almost institutionalized, you know, I guess. And then, you know, he's forced to go back to work and he does well for a while. And then you slowly watch the decline as he, it's almost like he runs and runs and runs, but he sees he's not getting anywhere. And then 
you know, his mental health issues are majorly acting up. And then it's just, it's a, it's a slow downward spiral, spiral to a quick decline. And, you know, it's, it's sad to watch him go through that. And, you know, it's why when I heard about, you know, what you were trying to do and your project, you know, it kind of hit home for me because, you know, that's my baby brother. He's always been my baby brother and, you know, not knowing what to do is a terrible place to be. You know, I've, I've tried to do little things. I've gone to court for him. I've helped him with an attorney. I've, you know, give him a place to live. I've done what I knew to do, but not being someone who has ever struggled from that side, you know, I'm going to see it from my perspective only. I can't see it from an addict's perspective. I can see, you know, how hard he struggles. And I know he's a, a great person. I think you mentioned earlier that people need to start giving a crap. And I think that's part of the problem. If they haven't been hit close to home, you know, either themselves being an addict or a loved one, they don't see it as a a problem that is worth solving. I don't think, I think they're afraid of it. They're afraid of the unknown. They know that nobody should be an addict and all that kind of stuff. But I think now's a great time though, for yeah. just that ideology shift, because it is starting to hit home for people. It is. Uh, overdose and relapse is up 30% just over the quarantine. And that's a low ball number because we're not going to actually know till later this year because the medical examiners are all backed up. So like now people are really starting to see like, you know, the, the everyday death rate with this opioid epidemic. And they even saw it in the 70s because Bruce Alexander decided that, you know, drug addiction needed to be looked into and researched more. We're all really familiar with the, the rat in a cage experiment. You give them a bottle of water, bottle of water with cocaine in it. The rat always prefers the cocaine, does it till it dies. You can do this at home if you're feeling sadistic. So what Bruce Alexander realized, though, is A, that experiment was done in the early 1900s. This is a really old experiment. and We're still utilizing and citing it for all of our information about drug addiction. The rat also had no choices. Its options were A, live in isolation, which is essentially how we treat people who go through the system. We do things to isolate them from society. Uh, we make it so they can't get jobs, work legitimately in the community. We put them on tracking and papers. We limit their access to, to things. Like they, they can't work uh, in areas that have kids anymore or anything, you know, to be a felon. Like uh, I, I wrestled for a really long time. Like I can't coach wrestling because I'm a felon. Yeah, which doesn't have anything to do with the other. And, and no. I think that's part of the problem is, you know, and, and my brother's even said this, that he feels like he's branded. And once you're branded, he's even said, what's the point? So Bruce Alexander took that experiment and kind of remapped it. And what he did was he built rat park was essentially heaven for rats. Because aside from that first choice of isolation, the other choices were just drink water or sleep. Like the, in, the, in that case, when your only option is pretty much get really high, you're going to get really high. So Rat Park was designed to provide more options to the rats. There were other rats in the cage. A, the, ca the rat was socially connected. There were hamster wheels, cheese, colored balls, tunnels, everything a rat could need to have a happy and successful life as a rat. And what we saw is that we went from a 100% overdose rate to a 0% overdose rate just by introducing social connectivity into this environment. Now, rats and people are very different, but when you have such a drastic change in numbers, why are we not trying to take this approach in our current like recovery models? So this idea of rate of recovery and service consolidation comes from the idea that Bruce Alexander's Rat Park had a significant change in what is considered a concrete drug experiment by introducing availability options and ease of access to those options. So that's why we want to put it all under one roof. 
uh, throw like 50 people in a house, make it super affordable because that's the only way it can be affordable is with volume. Uh, we can dump money right back into the program, have uh, case managers on site, helping people with those day-to-day things, getting driver's license, things they don't know how to do. Uh, we have somebody on site who knows how to handle legal services, get you a lawyer, fight cases that you may still have going on, divorces, custody. We go through all of that during the worst times of our life. Like, I can't tell you how many times someone who is in jail and in rehab is fighting all that stuff at the same time. These problems compound, so we need a compound solution. Absolutely. I think Raider Recovery is that compound solution. Absolutely. I mean, that that's a lot for anybody to go through, especially somebody that is struggling with an addiction and struggling to try to kind of regain some normalcy. And, you know, I kind of explain a little bit about, uh, you, you did give kind of an, an overview of, you know, the rat park and the idea of putting everything under one roof. What is it that it would take to make that a success overall? Um, to make this a success, we have a fundraising goal of about $600,000. And with $600,000, what I can do is I can long-term lease a building. I can remodel that building to accommodate people, office space. And then I can get a couple of vans, pay insurance on the vans. And then we have a work shuttle program that costs me maybe 150 bucks a month to get 50 people back and forth to work so that they can pay their rent. Uh, what it does is it'll, it gives me a base of operations to maintain contact with my business partners. Uh, who have agreed to hire whoever comes into my house already. Uh, I have Duke LLC, Big Oak Farms, uh, as well as some other restaurants and local businesses in the community who are willing to hire these people. Um, what the income and generated revenue does from the site uh, is allows me to bond wages. Like they, uh, Portugal is a great example. Uh, Portugal's government actually, uh, just like yeah, everybody's talking about, I think it was Oregon did it, just decriminalized all drugs. Portugal did that first. And what they saw was hey, a drastic decrease in their uh, their drug problem. And what they were able to do is all the money they would have spent prosecuting drug addiction, they were able to put towards solving the problem and treatment. So they were able to bond wages with employers and say, hey, if you hire this guy who needs a second chance, we'll agree, you and I can agree his wages can be $12 an hour. You only have to pay him nine of that. I'll cover the other three. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's that's hiring incentive. Yeah. And, and, you know, I am a big believer in, you know, the second chance, third chance, whatever the, the next chance approach to things, because, you know, again, if a person doesn't feel like there's a point, you know, then they're not going to be them that their best selves. And I like that you're kind of coming from this holistic approach to, you know, giving them all the solutions, not to just say, let's help you get clean. Let's help you, you know, stay clean and all these things, which those are, are, are great things. Absolutely not. Let's help you get a job and let's help yeah. you get back and forth to it. Let's help you get to your counseling appointment. Do you need medication? Let's find a way to get that. We, uh, I'm not really sure what the requirements are on such a thing yet because we've got so much other stuff to look into, but uh, we want to have on-site, an on, on-site pharmacist so we can ensure medication to our clients because lack of access to behavioral medication is just absolutely unacceptable, especially after institutionalization. Absolutely. Because at that point, they've literally been given it for who knows how long. And then they come out, they're already a struggling addict that's now weaning off of medication too. So, I mean, it's, it's just a lose, lose situation. And, you know, I, I don't work in the judicial system, so I can't tell you from that end, the, the loopholes or red tape that they have to go through. And I'm not trying to down you know, that, that, 
that the people in the system that some of them don't care. But what I am trying to say is there are some broken parts that need to be looked at. And, you know, this may be a solution to say, you know, if somebody is, you know, getting out of prison or and being sent to a recovery situation, to be able to have something in place that gives them the building blocks to rebuild their life, because that's the problem. You know, sending them to a recovery, you know, institution to say, well, you just recover, you know, just don't do drugs anymore. You know, that doesn't work because there's so many, even from a medical standpoint and a brain standpoint, the brain's been changed after doing drugs. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's no amount of saying don't do drugs that's going to stop the brain from craving it. I'm really glad you said that because, um, you know, I want to talk about dopamine for a second. And when I say dopamine, I want you to think about motivation. Motivation and dopamine are interchangeable words. You, you do things at all because of dopamine. You get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, and you take care of yourself. So on the best day of your life... You have probably about 50 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine in your system. On the worst day of your life, you have about 10, no, 30, 10 to 30. It's, it's something like that. It's, 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 yeah, I think 10. No, whatever. When you smoke meth for the first time, you have over 1,000 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine in your system. 20 times better than the best day of your life. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that I think needs to be taught more because it is it's a, it is a teaching situation, you know, because a, a lot of medical professionals, if they don't study the brain, they don't study the effects of drug abuse, they don't, you know, study it from that angle. They also do not know what needs to be done with somebody that's in recovery. Um, same to be said for any person that this recovering addict is going to be, you know, you know, dealing with on a daily basis, because, you know, when the odds are stacked up against you already, you know, you're having to deal with depression, you're dealing with, you know, getting out of the institution, trying to figure out what you need to do. You mentioned debt, you have, you know, a lot of times, you know, sometimes restitutions and, you know, legal fees and, you know, all this, you know, debt that you are coming out of prison, you know, with, and then you're acquiring more because you can't find a job because you're an addict you know, you don't have transportation to get to where you need to go. So all these things are stressors. And, you know, we all know, even if you're not an addict, we all know that stressors can cause people to think in a way that they normally wouldn't to do things that they normally wouldn't. And if you look at drug addiction as a mental health issue, which I truly believe it is. Absolutely. It is like a mental health issue. You know, I mean, addiction is defined as a compulsive behavior. And if a behavior is compulsive, that means you can't help it. You have to do it. Well, that's because, and, and, you know, again, when somebody tries a drug, and it doesn't even matter what the drug is, they try something. Like in high school, they're at a party and they decide to try something because teenagers are dumb and they do dumb things. You know, I don't know the exact percentage, but let's just say 50-50 for argument's sake. It's a 50-50 chance that they could become an addict. It's, you know, nobody plays. I mean, let's think about about the number I just said earlier. A thousand nanograms per deciliter of dopamine. That's like winning the lottery, living on the beach, and having 2% body fat 10 times in the same day. And what happens is when you come off of that, your dopamine level goes way below the normal level. So you have no motivation to take care of yourself. We see tooth decay because you're not brushing your teeth and all you drink is soda. We see, you know, picking at the skin. We see low, poor body hygiene, not showering, not taking care of 
yourself, not going to work. You, the motivation to do these things is gone because we've changed your brain chemistry now. Absolutely. And then, you know, we were mentioning, you know, medication, a lot of times that'll put in synthetic versions of that that may ha make you a little happy for a while, but it also starts to cause more of an imbalance, especially when you get out and you're suddenly off of that medication. So, you know, I, I like where you're going with this idea of approaching it from a holistic view and putting the building blocks in place to not only help them stay clean and not do drugs. That's only one portion. It's what do we do to make it to where they're How able do we to rebuild their life? Yeah. Rebuild their life. And by rebuilding their life, you're going to increase their own happiness in their life and allow it to where they're less likely to want to screw that up. But when you're living in, in a place that you feel like a failure, you feel there's no options, you feel stuck. A lot of people give up. And, and I've watched my brother do that. I've watched him just completely give up because he's exhausted on trying and hitting the same brick wall. And giving up is succumbing to apathy. Succumbing to apathy is something we see happen a lot in, uh, in the current system too. But people give in to apathy because they don't see a light at the end of the rainbow. When you have or at the end of the tunnel, sorry. If you're on a rainbow already, it just seems like everything's pretty cool. Um, yeah, drug addiction is definitely not a rainbow. Let's back that up. Uh, just whoop, stop the bus. Um, if you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, then of course you're not going down the tunnel. If you, if at the end of that tunnel, I can say, hey man, I got a job for you. I got you a room. Like we're going to make sure you got food stamps. You're going to be good. All you got to do is just go to work. Get up, get on a van, pay your rent. You know, so all this good stuff can keep going and, you know, keep it as affordable as possible so you can save some money. Because like I said, you know, we're, we're planning to be able to bond wages. So that means, you know, you're going to be making a livable wage. I'm, I'm not I'm not allowing anyone in my house to work for minimum wage. We're not we're not doing that. This isn't 1985. 725 is not going to cut it. It's not livable. It's a starvation wage. So that's also why, you know, the wage bonding is important. So with a, with a livable wage, affordable housing, uh, access to the services you need to, to be successful, I don't see a reason anyone would be able to say, oh, yeah, I give up on that. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the reason that I love this idea that giving people purpose is everything. A lot of people know that I'm in, you know, the business world. And when you're speaking to another person, like when I'm talking to an entrepreneur or another small business owner, one of the biggest things to get them to excel in their business is by finding their why, finding their purpose. You know, we can think about it in, you know, ways with business. You know, a lot of us know that you got to have the purpose. You got to have that why to get up and really just keep pushing forward. Even when, you know, early on in an entrepreneurship journey, it's hard. It's a hard struggle, but you keep going because you have that why and you have that purpose. And, you know, if you kind of take a step back and think about it, humans need purpose. We need that why as a human. And, Sadly, a lot of the people that are, you know, coming out of a drug addiction or struggling with a drug addiction, you know, for whatever reason, they've not been able to find that purpose and, and find that why. And, you know, they've taken the drug in place of that because they're filling a void. And I think by coming in with a plan like you have and establishing these building blocks that their basic needs are taken care of and they're able to get access to medical care, access to counseling, access to everything else they need they can start to fill the void and find that purpose and find that why. And I think that 
everyone's why at some primal level is happiness and just the tools to happiness nowadays in the society we live in are unfortunately, you know, money. (laughs) That's, that's how you get it. And, you know, when you further remove someone from society where it's harder to get money, it's harder to do anything. Wealth drives everything. When you don't have it, you're essentially boned and, they're able to hit the reset button on your life whenever they want. Here's jail. Here's rehab. There you go. Now you're back to square one with nothing. And we need to be able to get these people in a productive situation where they can save money, ultimately get out of the center and maintain those work connections, maintain the things that we've been able to set up for them while they were there. But like, Ultimately, the the average stay I would like to see would be six months to a year. But like, you know, I'm not putting anybody under contract here. Like, you know, you can leave whatever you want. But I don't see that being a, as much of a problem. You know, your ride to work is right here. There's a yeah, big yeah. TV in the living room. Like, most people didn't have that. They were on the street a few weeks ago, you know? Absolutely. And I know earlier you were mentioning just about, you know, the, the rat haven and, you know, when they, with the socialization and all that, and it got me thinking, I wanted to kind of touch on that a little more, you know, other than purpose and the why, you know, another thing that humans have to have is connection. You know, they, we, we crave that connection with other humans. And unfortunately, a lot of, you know, drug addicts have been, you know, like you mentioned, pushed out of society. So they're not getting that connection except from other addicts. And have you seen in your journey, have, have you noticed that there have been more instances of shunning of addicts that are in recovery and actually trying that has potentially made them turn back to who they used to hang out with, who's still involved in the drug life and maybe well, you know, aided in them falling off the wagon? Is people are generally all right with you being in recovery as long as they can't tell you're in recovery. So it becomes an issue when people discover you're in recovery of, you know, let's say you need a little visine before you go to work one day because your eyes are dry. The question is going to be, oh, are you high now? Uh, it's that stigma that's going to come with it. It's that's going to be the go-to answer for any time there is something wrong with you. It's going to be, oh, he's probably just high again. And, you know, the guy could be two years clean and just be sick that day. Do you think that causes a lot of problems with people who are struggling, you know, and, and trying to stay clean? Do you think I mean, that, causes- that disconnect pretty much means that there's only one group of people you can really be comfortable with now. That's you know, and- people you used to hang out with. So what are some steps? Like if somebody's listening right now and... I mean, I was going to say, and they know somebody in recovery, but I'd say chances are, whether you know it or not, most people know somebody that are either an addict or in recovery or both. Um, You know, what would you tell them to try to help that person feel more connected um, other than, like you mentioned, trying not to have that stigma? Getting connected is as easy as this. Walk into an NA meeting, raise your hand and say, hi, my name is Chase. I'm an addict. And I need a phone list. Literally everyone in the room will write their number down on a piece of paper and you immediately have a list of people you can call. Now, given sometimes the people you call from NA are not helpful, some are. You kind of got to dig through it and work it out for yourself who's good to have and good. But it's a start. 
It's a great start. Oh, great. Now I got 20 phone numbers. Over the next week or so, I can call these guys, see if they have anything worthwhile to say or contribute to my life and see who I'm going to make friends with or not. There's your network right there. What about from an employer stance? Um, As an employer, you know, what would you recommend as far as dealing with a hiring process of a potential addict or maybe they... um, have a person that has been working for them that is also struggling with addiction. How, how would you tell them to kind of handle that dynamic? Um, there really isn't a dynamic there to handle. I mean, the, their recovery is going to be a personal journey. There's nothing you can do about their recovery. However, moving forward, like I think you should value them as an employee because I definitely know that if the lights go out in the building, give them some nail clippers and chewing gum, they can probably Jerry rig it back together for you. Uh, People think that drug addiction is like a lack of willpower and they think it's like a a lack of like drive or ambition or, well, you know what? Like drug addicts are some of the most driven, willpowered, ambitious people I know because there's been plenty of times that I woke up in the morning, didn't have a dollar to my name, didn't have a phone and didn't have a way to get around town. And I found a way to get high when I wanted to get high. Absolutely. It's just channeling that into something that's more productive, right? (laughs) Absolutely. So if you put a different end goal in front of these kinds of individuals, like that's all still there. And that's really uh, something that I want to address as a, like a living skills kind of thing uh, at the center is this uh, being able to drive that, redirect that ambition in different ways. And what, I, what I've been doing lately is I've been talking to some people who work in counseling, work in psychi- psychology, psychiatry, and uh, kind of like seeing what kind of what a counseling structure would look like uh, that's kind of geared towards that ideology of redirecting that. Uh, because but you don't hear that really talked about so much in rehab. I mean, you hear the addicts in rehab talk about that. You know, like a lot of crazy stuff has happened and been pulled out of their asses before. Excuse my French. No, but, yeah. you know. People want to just immediately jump on, oh, but no, that was the wrong thing to do. Well, yes, it was the wrong thing to do, right? But the silver lining here is it it was the right drive. It was the right determination. It was the right uh, ingenuity to achieve what you wanted to achieve. It's just that what you wanted to achieve then was the wrong thing. Absolutely. And, you know, um, resourcefulness is something that it's really hard to teach. You either have it or you don't. And, you know, that like I've never heard anyone to be resourceful ever. Yeah. So being resourceful is something that can be if guided correctly. You know, it absolutely be, is. Yeah. There are skill sets that, you know, recovering uh, crim- uh, drug addicts and you know, criminals transitioning in society have. Like uh, I, I went to state prison and I'm like, what's a stinger? Yo, like they're boiling water in their cells. How? <laughs> I don't know how. They're doing it safely using electricity. If that's not ingenuity to eat hot food in your cell, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And, you know, that out-of-the-box thinking, if utilized correctly, you know, can be able to give them, you know, the ability to do all kinds of amazing things if they're given the proper tools to be able to get over their hurdles. And we all have our hurdles. We all have our vices. I mean, and, and that's one of the things that, you know, I've always, you know, said is a lot of people have addictions, they're just not drug addictions. Some people are addicted to TV. Some people are addicted to pornography. Some people are addicted to work. Some people Some people can't get off their phones. They can't. So, I mean, there's lots of things. And the reason it goes back to the same thing, it's that pleasure sensor in the brain is the same thing as a drug addiction. They're getting that little, little dose, little dose of happiness, you know, for that moment. And, you know, the only 
difference in this is that, you know, those things aren't illegal, you know, and I think if you kind of take a step back and kind of people would get off their high horse a little bit and realize that, you know, we all have those things that we need to do less of, or maybe we need to do more of, you know, it's still January. So a lot of people are like, I need to exercise more and eat better. And, but do you maybe for January, half the time people by February are off that wagon too, you know, so looking at it from a different angle and realizing that, you know, this, this drug addiction is just another thing that we all struggle with. And the only difference is it's illegal and, you know, they have a harder time being able to stop. So I think the normalization of being able to accept people who are going through these struggles, I think is the first step because that allows people to be a little bit more caring and to be a little bit more willing to kind of take a step forward and say, well, what can I do? Because I think most people are, are good people. I mean, there's some people out there that suck, but most people are good people and they want to help. They just don't know what to do. And they don't know what it's going to take from them. And, you know, my thing is, is a little bit can go a long way, whether it's financial or just support or, you know, whatever. If somebody is interested in kind of finding out, you know, how to kind of get involved in this project on whatever level, you know, where can they go to kind of find more out about that? You know, what would you well, tell them? They can send an email to outreach at RaiderRecovery.com. And here soon, uh, we will be publishing RaiderRecovery.com. And in the meantime, uh, you can head over to our Facebook page, Raider Recovery on Facebook. And you can even donate to the organization at PayPal.com slash Raider Recovery. I think it's dot .me. Yeah, it's dot .me. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, here soon, we'll uh, we'll be putting up uh, my video testimony on the site. Uh, I'll be uh, on there with Stacey Toy talking about some things also. Uh, we'll be able to have some buttons there for more donations. We're going to be doing a, a merch store and we're going to be getting uh, COVID masks made, you know, uh, with our logo and stuff on it. Like try to support the cause here a little bit, uh, see what we can do, uh, in the ways of fundraising. Uh, in the meantime, what I do is I have a, a buddy of mine, Ryan in Maryland, who's had some grant writing experience, who's been, uh, talking to me about what that process is like in Maryland. So, uh, now I'm looking for somebody to kind of cross-reference that experience with in PA to see what's going to be different. Cause obviously it will be. And, uh, what, what would be able to be done in that route and then ultimately have Ryan write for a grant for us. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, maybe somebody listening just happens to say, hey, I know somebody. If you know somebody that, you know, knows about grant writing and is in the you know, the PA area, reach out to me or Chase and I'll make sure Chase gets the information. I, you know, I love that you're doing this and I love the the cause behind it. I love, I've seen a lot of people just on Facebook and stuff kind of pulling together kind of in support for this idea, because again, I think a lot of people realize that this is a problem that's kind of gone too long with this big gap. You know, there's been this big gap between. Oh yeah. Congratulations to the war on drugs for winning the war on drugs. We haven't really done anything effective for like over 30 or 40 years. Really we can say for the last hundred years since we started really oppressing this. Absolutely. And, you know, being able to take that first step and the second step and the third step and and normalize, you know, integrating, you know, recovering addicts back into society, you know, 100%, 100% into society, I think is huge because giving them that purpose and giving them that structure is going to do nothing but help to ensure that they stay 
you know, recovered. And I love that you're doing this. If we don't have an organized response as a society, what's going to happen is we're going to die to this. The numbers only go up every year. Uh, and, you know, like we, we can sit here and talk about it and cite .govs and .orgs all we want, but that's unilaterally expressed in the statistics. More people every year are dying, and we just had a massive spike over quarantine. So this has hit right in people's living rooms now. If we don't band together as a community and start healing our communities and addressing this problem, not putting a Band-Aid on it, but looking at the bullet hole, we're going to drown in it. People are literally on the streets, passed out from heroin, drooling on themselves right now. And I think a lot of people hear that. I heard that in my heart breaks, in their heart breaks. But a lot of times they don't know what to do. They're afraid. You know, they're afraid. They don't know, like, if they find somebody laying there like that, what, what is the right thing to do? You know, and I think the unknowing, like not knowing what to do paralyzes people so they do nothing even if they want to. And so going ahead. And a lot of times the bystander effect plays a role too. The, oh, somebody else is going to take care of that. That's the cop's problem. Or that's, that's the paramedic's problem. Or, or that's his mom's problem. Or that's, you know, that's a problem for his girlfriend to deal with. You know, like people think that's not my responsibility so often. Uh, Absolutely. And I think having, you know, easy steps to where, you know, once you have this all structured and you have it to where you're able to work directly with these recovering addicts directly out of, you know, jail, get them, get them a job, get them a place to live, get them, you know, structure with all the building blocks they need, being able to allow them to have a voice, maybe on a show like this to be able to tell their story. Cause I think that's part of it is. That's actually been discussed doing a podcast out of, uh, out of it just for giggles. Like, you know, I don't know who'd listen to it, but just people being able to put their stories out there and be heard. Cause a lot of the reason people like DNA literature so much, me, me especially is because we have the personal accounts of individuals in the back for us to relate to. And I think that's really important relatability connection recovery regrowth we we need these things and i actually think like having a little like podcast studio just hey whenever you want to use it use it here's how you sign in here's how you post it to the channel there you go um and just kind of just give it a free for all thing well and i think at that level people can start listening to some of these people talk and it will humanize their story a little more because it's not just, Oh, he's an addict. It's, you know, exactly. I'm so glad you said it that way. Humanize them. So, and, and I think that's important because I think that's part of the issue. If you're treated not human, you know, what, what do we expect people to act like if they're told you're an addict, you're no good, you're not worth this, you can't, you shouldn't, you know, a person who doesn't struggle with addiction, if you're literally talked down to all day long, What's that going to do to you? You know what I mean? And a person that does struggle with addiction, you know, they're going to obviously turn to their source of comfort, which is what they're trying to stay off of. And I I love the idea of doing a podcast, giving them a voice and being able to have that be the connection to kind of the other side to people that don't understand it. Like, I think that would be great. And uh, ultimately what we want to do is we want to see this kind of go coast to coast. It's not just about PA. It's about, it's about America. You know, I want to see these in every state. So if we pop these up in every state over the course of the next like 50 years or however long that's going to take, you know, put a podcast in each one. Now we literally have like a broadcast network also like of 
our story, what we're doing, how we're trying to help, what we can do in the community. And like, it only gets bigger. Like the social problems that we have aren't confined to criminal behavior and drug addiction. I mean, there is a day that will come where we can branch out into homelessness, domestic violence, you know, uh, not having enough support for homeless veterans. Like there, there's a lot more we can do down the road. But I think the biggest problem right now is what needs to be addressed. And that's just the rampant opioid epidemic. Absolutely. All right. So if you all want to find out more about Chase and Raider Recovery and what all he is going to be doing to help recovering addicts and really to help your community, I encourage you to reach out to him on Facebook, Twitter. We'll drop the information to get in touch with him in the show notes. And Chase, I've really enjoyed having you on and I wish you all the luck in the world. I'm a big supporter of your idea and I love it. And um, again, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Maria. It was great to be on. Thank you for having me. Questions I don't have answers, clearly no manners. Babe.